Acts chapter 13. Now you can hear me. 4 through 12. Doesn't our sound system sound so good today? Ever thought about that, Jim? I spend a few hours each day thinking about sound. Sound. We have new speakers. So, some of you feel financially generous, need some money in the PA system. We are spending, spending, spending. But the word's got to go out, right? It's got to go out. So let's uh, have a word of prayer and we'll get into God's word. Father in heaven, um, prayer has already gone forth this morning. And we ask for that prayer to continue, that the Holy Spirit will be here this morning, that he'll also be at the hospital beds of those in need, and um, that as your word is explained this morning, Lord, that it will come alive for each person here. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your mercy to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, when we covered verses um, 1 through 3 of Acts, we saw that the Holy Spirit specifically sent out two men, selected two men. Who were they? Barnabas and Saul, who most of us know as Paul. And I want you to notice that it's the Holy Spirit that's in control here. In fact, it would be a useful exercise to go through the whole book of Acts and just underline how many references there are to the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is in charge of missions, no matter what Satan does, God's cause will triumph. And what we're going to see this morning is like a power encounter, if I can use that word. It kind of sounds very charismatic, doesn't it? Very Pentecostal when I use language like that. Here we're seeing the Holy Spirit taking the church in a very new direction. Last week we talked about the international nature of the church in Antioch. This is Antioch in Syria. Some of you are a little confused about that. So to the right of the screen, you can see the word Syria, and you can see this Antioch on the right-hand side of the screen. That Antioch is now in the southern tip of Turkey. And if you have been to Turkey, that's the place we're talking about, used to be in Syria. So on the map that you have there, it will be Antioch of Syria. And that is the base where missions is going to launch out to the world. Now, Luke is being very selective, as every Bible writer must be. They're not telling you the whole story. They're picking out certain specific 
events and incidents that the Spirit is impressing upon them. So what we're seeing here, these red lines are telling you something of maybe the first missionary journey, and then there would be a second missionary journey, and then a third missionary journey. They're not telling us about Thomas going to India, for example. Wouldn't that be interesting? But then you'd need uh, a much bigger book of Acts of, of the Apostles if you're going to do that. So it's important to realize whenever you're studying the Bible that the Bible writer is very selective and it's very easy to read things in that may be justified or may not be justified. And that's why we compare Scripture with Scripture. That's a big thing for Seventh-day Adventists. It's not a small thing. It's a very big thing. Why do we not believe in the immortality of the soul? Because we compare Scripture with Scripture. And we find that there's some texts that seem maybe not so clear, and that people who do believe in the immortality of the soul, they want to maybe run with those texts. But when we take all the texts that we can find on what happens when someone dies then a Seventh-day Adventist, it seems to us by far the weight of evidence is the dead are dead. And you cannot communicate with the dead if they're dead, because the dead are not living, they're dead, right? So it seems basic and almost common sense to us, and quite consistent in Scripture, and yet millions upon millions, in fact billions of people throughout this world understand that differently than we do as Seventh-day Adventists. That is going to be an issue in, this, in these few verses that we're going through this morning, because we're going to come across Satan's attempt to, to slow down or to stop the success of the gospel. So when we're looking for a title for this sermon... I have a number of titles that came in my head, but Occult, O-C-C-U-L-T, Occult versus Gospel is the one that I went with. So as we look at these verses in verse 4, it says the two of them, we've already identified who they, the two are, Barnabas and Saul, went on their way by the what? by the Holy Spirit. So there's the Holy Spirit mentioned again. Keeps cropping up. It's obvious that Luke's making a point here that the Holy Spirit is in charge of the church. When Jesus says the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, he knows that the Holy Spirit's going to be working when he makes statements like that. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the church is like the apple of their eye. Very precious to them. The Holy Spirit, sent by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, sailed from there to Cyprus. So Cyprus is this island to the left there. Cyprus is what, where we're traveling to this morning. When they arrived at a place called Salamis, they did what? They proclaimed or preached the Word of God. Now, it would be very easy to jump over a verse like that but it's very significant. When you and I think of missions, lots of things come into our head. 
We can think of uh, an organization like um, ADRA, Adventist Development and Relief. What's the last word? Agency, thank you. We can think of Maranatha, a Sacramento-based organization that goes out building, putting buildings up. We can think of, of the hospital side, the medical side of missions. But the primary focus, which we, never need, we should never forget, and, and Luke is trying to help us to see the importance of it, is that it has to include the proclamation of the Word of God. Because we know if we take care of people physically, there is something else besides the physical. There is the spiritual that has to be taken care of too. So in hospitals, we will probably have chaplains and, and things like that. So in missions, is proclamation of the Word of God. And God is sending these two men out. It's probably significant that they go in twos. I believe that that is a pattern, an ideal that Scripture puts before us, that we don't go out in our own strength. Obviously, we need the strength of the Holy Spirit, but we also try and work with somebody. So you have many of these disciples in the Bible working in pairs when Jesus sent them out two by two, for example. So that doesn't, that doesn't seem to be uh, unimportant, it seems to me to be significant that these men are going to... There's an accountability. There's a helping and encouraging of one another. After all, the forces of evil are going to come against this missionary for God, whoever that might be. So obviously they need to be praying together, working together, helping one another. So... Some of you in this uh, audience this morning are saying, Pastor, I want to be trained to know how to, to win souls, how to work for people and lead them closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit in you, to give you that desire. And of course, He will give some of you some special gifts in being able to do that. That's also the work of the Holy Spirit, but also be looking for a partner. Pray for that. Pray that the Lord will bring the right person in your life that you can work with together. So they go to Cyprus, and when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the Word of God in the Jewish synagogue. So again, this seems to be like a, a familiar pattern that we're seeing in the early Christian church. Now remember, this man Saul, Paul, is going to be especially the apostle to the Gentiles. So most of you know that. And yet here we're seeing him going to the Jewish synagogues. And in these Jewish synagogues, you probably had people besides Jews. You would have people, Gentiles, who would be called God-fearers. They're seeing uh, that, that Judaism makes some kind of sense. They're respecting the, uh, the, the Old Testament and the ways of Judaism. They want to learn about those things. They want to draw closer to God through that. And so these missionaries specifically would cross the island of Cyprus, finding the Jewish 
synagogues and being given an opportunity to preach there. It says in verse um, 5 that John was with them as their helper. Now, two have been sent, but it's also mentioning John, a third person. So who is this John? His name is John Mark. And Paul and Barnabas, a little bit later in the, in the book of Acts, will fall out over John Mark. And John Mark probably said to Barnabas and Saul, hey, why don't I come along with you? It's interesting that it doesn't say the Holy Spirit chose John Mark. Neither can we conclude that the Holy Spirit didn't want John Mark to go. He was a young man who would be a real blessing in the life of the Apostle Paul uh, later. But he had some, some maturing, some growing up to do as we all have to go through that process. So notice that John was with them, and he will be mentioned later in the book of Acts. So they traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos, and there they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear what? Word of God. So wasn't Bar-Jesus, wasn't Elymas giving him the Word of God? Or was Bar-Jesus Elymas very selective in his use of the Word of God? Now, it's not unusual to find Jewish people who have a basic understanding of Judaism and a basic understanding of the Jewish Bible to mix in pagan ideas. So instead of having the pure faith explained in the correct way, you get this amalgamation of the true and the false. We're surrounded with that constantly in Christendom, right? Pagan ideas have come into Christendom uh, through the Greeks, through Greek philosophy, Greek ideas. So we should always have the, the, the radar detector up, so to speak, to be able to detect truth from error. So notice what we have here. We have this man, this Jewish man, Bar-Jesus, Elymas, who's like a, a wise man in the court of this Sergius Paulus. Sergius Paulus seems to be sincerely wanting to know the Word of God. So let's, let's conclude that in Sergius, we have a sincere seeker for truth, right? Maybe we have someone that's right on the edge of the kingdom, and God has raised up Barnabas and Saul to take him over that next step in his journey. 
But if the Holy Spirit is working and He has God's men or God's women who are willing to be used, we know that someone's on the warpath. What's his name? Different names. Satan used to be called Lucifer, Satan, or the devil. Hi. Are we going to be a team together preaching here this morning? I need a little bit of help. And so Satan is going to do everything he can. That's why I said this is a power encounter, a supernatural conflict between good and evil. He's going to do everything he can to stop Sergius Paulus embracing this new found faith, which we call Christianity. Remember what Christianity is. Christianity is not buildings. It's not religion. It's a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is Christ. His life, His death, His resurrection, His ministry in heaven, His second coming. It's how men and women get right with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Barnabas and Saul, they knew that. They know when they preach the proclaim the Word of God, they proclaim it in a very Christ-centered way, I would believe. And so this man bar Jesus, which means, bar means son, son of Jesus, kind of interesting name, son of Joshua maybe. It's interesting that Luke throws in in verse 8, Elymas the sorcerer, for that is what his name means. He opposed them and he tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Have you ever been in a situation in your life when you're with somebody and you feel that they're right on the edge of embracing the Lord Jesus Christ and something comes in to slow down, to mess up? Often when I'm, when I'm working with people, I say, hey, you come as my silent partner. If that baby cries, you go and help with the baby. Or if that dog gets out of control, it's amazing the things that happen when you're giving Bible studies to people. And you feel, feel, wow, this is a sacred moment. And then something will come in. So you need to be spiritually alive to that possibility. And I'll tell you something, Saul and Barnabas are not just going to stay tight-lipped, keep their mouths shut when something like that happens. But before we get into that, how Saul dealt with this, I want to dwell for a few minutes on this idea of sorcery. And so I wrote down last night some words. Now, you can come to me later and add to my list. But here's what came into my head. It mentions that this um, Elymas, Bar-Jesus, is a sorcerer. One definition of that is a student of the metaphysical, possesses and uses of supernatural knowledge and ability. So this man would be professing to have this special knowledge 
of the ways of God. It also mentions in the text that he is a false prophet. Now, the Bible speaks a lot about false prophets. And it seems wherever there's been a true prophet, there's always a lot of false prophets. Should we expect false prophets today? Jesus specifically said at the end of the age that there will be false prophets. So if we find them in the pulpit, if we find them in the church, if we find them in our religion, don't be surprised. We've been warned. We should be almost expecting these things. <clears throat> I also wrote down the word astrologer. And if you'd like to check your horoscopes, magician, charlatan, deceivers. I have some, I have some excellent material on these things. Sometimes I think I actually should do a whole series on this subject, but I don't know. It just, um, I think it's really, really important. That's why I'm dwelling on it now. But whether I actually should get into a series on it is another issue. It seems that if you have a worldwide movement that is so anti-Word of God, that you and I should be pretty knowledgeable about these things. So it's a little bit of a balancing act as a, as a pastor to know um, how much from this pulpit I should share on this subject. But I do want you to know, I look on it, and I believe Ellen White looked on it as, as incredibly important. Uh, charlatan, deceivers, people that are using trickery, slate of hands, that is happening, psychics, uh, necromancer, which is a biblical name for spiritism, occult, I mentioned that, uh, hidden secret wisdom, tarot cards, fortune telling, mediumship, divination, parapsychology, graphology, what are those two? Parapsychology, graphology, it's a scientific way of studying spiritism. So we get it out of the trickery, we get it out of the, out of the realm of, well, maybe, maybe not, we're not really sure, and we find ways of recording spiritist voices, for example. And at least in the West, don't we like to think that we, we, we live in a scientific age? So if you want to bring this up to date, then you have things like parapsychology, graphology, palmistry. George mentioned the Ouija board. Thought messages. And have you ever heard of the New Age? New Age can just be a, a, an up-to-date way of communicating spiritism. Witchcraft. And then on the TV, things like um, the program called Medium, Ghost Whisperer, or Crossing Over with John Edward, and then books, possibly Harry Potter, Twilight series, and we can go on and on. 
Because this is a massive, massive movement on the part of Satan to deceive the whole world on this issue. Now, it was good this morning that many of us got the opportunity to go into Genesis chapter 3. And, I, and the class that you were in, I don't know, of course, uh, what, what you mentioned, what was mentioned in your class, but in our class, we, we mentioned the deception of Satan working through the serpent. Has God really said? It's a questioning of the Word of God. Has God really said? Are you sure? Is He not trying to withhold something from you? Now, I believe, because I know it from my own experience, I believe that there's a lot of sincere people that get sucked up into this kind of stuff. So I'm not asking that you leave this, this sanctuary today and pounce on your best friend because they're reading horoscopes. And by the way, we have heads of nations who don't really make too many decisions without going to their, their, their medium, their wise person to advise them. And there are even books that have been written on, on how the occult affected the Nazis in the Second World World War. Revelation 16, it talks of the, the kings, the leaders of the whole world being deceived by this kind of, of thing. In this country, around eight, uh, 1848, you had two young ladies who were supposed to be living in a house where somebody had been murdered. Fox sisters. And even though they later denied um, the genuineness of their experiences, uh, spiritism still spiritism still claims them as as their own. What I was looking for was an article that I have where Ellen White talks of this movement of spiritism like a train. And have you read that? Like a train. And it seemed that the whole world was on board. And they looked at the man in charge, the conductor or the driver, whatever his name is, so fair, so handsome. And this individual is Satan getting the whole world. And it all revolves around the day you eat of that fruit, you shall die. And Satan coming along saying, nah, you shall not really die. So you can see the importance of this teaching on the state of the dead. Sergio Paulus, he's probably clueless about what the Bible teaches on these things. So I look on him as maybe the innocent inquirer who's going to a Jewish wise man, Elymas, bar Jesus, and trying to understand what truth is. And it was in my quest to know what truth is 
that I got sucked into this Ouija board and, and the whole world of, of spiritism. So I know that people can be sincere, sincere inquirers after these things. And, uh, but we can also be sincerely deceived. So whether someone is sincere or not, I'm sure that's important to God. George, do you have a problem? I'm sure that's important to God. We can't read the heart, can we? We can just advise people, steer clear. Here's why. Did you hear the Scripture reading this morning? Were you listening carefully? What it says there in, in Deuteronomy, how we should avoid. We can go to Leviticus. We can go to many places in the Old Testament and the New Testament that counsel us to guard against getting drawn in to these philosophies, these philosophies that basically nurture this idea that the dead are really not dead that they're living on somewhere. And then, of course, the next step, if they're living on somewhere, which the majority of Christendom believes, by the way, then let's go the next step, which the majority of Christendom does not believe, and communicate with them. But here's the tricky part. If you're a preacher in the pulpit and you have said over and over and over again, well, Betty, who has just passed away, is now with the Lord and, and, and kind of get given the impression that Betty is worshiping the Lord in heaven, right? And that's been the tenor of your ministry when you take funeral services or when you preach from the Word of God. And then someone like you and I come along as Seventh-day Adventists and say, no, the dead know nothing. It's a real paradigm shift to get your head around that idea. Now, I do know very sincere Christians who say have nothing to do with spiritism, and they will go to those texts, like in Deuteronomy, similar text in the book of Leviticus, to show how dangerous it can be. But the problem is, already open the door. If the door has been opened saying the dead are not really dead, we want to shut that door, right? God wants us to shut that door. I was saying to my wife the other day, you know, I really like the Adventist teaching on steering clear of alcohol. I've had my own experience with it. I've seen the damage that it has done in many, many lives. And to me, it just makes sense. I was in Costco the other day. I couldn't believe how many bottles of wine that I saw. I mean, huge section of the store being taken up with wine. And as soon as you say, well, a little wine's okay, it's kind of like you've opened, at least me as a preacher, I kind of opened that door just a little bit. And there's going to be somebody in my family or in my flock who's going to run with that. They might be the one that gets hooked and it destroys their life. So I don't really have a problem with the idea of, hey, steer clear. And I certainly think that way 
when it comes to this issue of the state of the dead and the immortality of the soul. And in many ways, I think it's, it's as big, if not a bigger issue, than the Sabbath. The Sabbath is just total confusion in people's thinking, and they usually don't even think about it very much. But in your life, there's always somebody that passes away, right? It's always there for many people. It's kind of hard to get away from. And we get this bombardment on TV, in the media, that the dead are not really dead. This is February issue of Signs of the Times. Just got it in the mail, right on the front, the devil's door into spiritualism. So there are some Seventh-day Adventists in the publishing business that know how important it is to deal with those things. Yes. Well, that's why I mentioned it. Um, just as we feel the Sabbath Sunday is going to be a major, major issue at the end of the age, so this is already a major issue. We don't have Sunday laws that are going to be imposed tomorrow, but we, this is being imposed yesterday, today, and tomorrow already. It's right there in our midst. And of course, if you have a TV at home, which most of us do, how easy it is to watch those programs, to read that literature, or whatever other way it comes your way. I think it's really important to emphasize the subtlety that is here. If it's blatant in your face as a Seventh-day Adventist, you'll probably steer clear. It's just so obvious. You see somebody dabbling in witchcraft. I, I can't see many Seventh-day Adventists being drawn into that. But if you get something that's more uh, of an educated nature, a little bit more cultured, more sophisticated, more subtle, then unless you truly believe the Word of God, no matter what your senses tell you, if Eve is relying on senses, she's finished. Right? If she's relying on the Word of God, she's going to stand strong. And at the end of the age, that, that again will be, will be an issue. What are you going to believe? The Word of God or the miracles that are so obviously of God, except the Word says no. It's very, very easy to almost be programmed without your knowing. It's like, there's like a programming of the whole of humanity, uh, getting, getting the human race ready for the showdown at the end of the age. On this passage that we're studying this morning, listen to this statement. Not without a struggle does Satan allow the kingdom of God to be built up in the earth. That's God's purpose. We're going to launch out from Antioch and we're going, to, we're going to reach the rest of the world. We're going into an area where non-Jews, people who are clueless about how to be right with God, they're going to hear the good news. 
The forces of evil are engaged in unceasing warfare against the agencies appointed for the spread of the gospel. And these powers of darkness are especially active when the truth is proclaimed before men of repute, Sergius Paulus, and sterling integrity. Does it not say that he's an intelligent man who is searching? Thus it was when Sergius Paulus, the deputy of Cyprus, was listening to the gospel message. The deputy had sent for the apostles that he might be instructed in the message that they had come to bear. And now the forces of evil, working through the sorcerer Elymas, sought with their baleful suggestions to turn him from the faith and so thwart the purpose of God. Thus the fallen foe, Satan, ever works to keep in his ranks men of influence who, if converted, might render effective service in God's cause. But the faithful gospel worker need not fear defeat at the hand of the enemy, for it is his or her privilege to be endued with power from above to withstand every satanic influence. Well, how does Saul, how do Saul and Barnabas deal with this tricky situation? It says in verse 9, then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, it's interesting that Luke puts that in yet again, looked straight at Elymas and said, you are a child of the devil. Would you like Paul or Saul to look right in your eyes? They say he had bad eyesight. I wonder if that's why it's mentioned. But he looked right in and says, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? So whichever way you cut the cake with Elymas bar Jesus, whether he's using trickery, whether he's possessed by satanic spirits, which, whichever way it is, he's trying to stop this sincere seeker finding the Lord. That's the issue. That's the main issue. I'm sure that Luke could give us thousands of stories where the devil is trying to slow down God's work. But he selects just a few to make very important points. As long as Saul and Barnabas are filled with the Holy Spirit, they have nothing to fear from the, from the forces of evil. But any Christian who is determined to spread the gospel and live a godly life is going to be dealing with these forces. So we need to make sure that we are being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now there's a difference between having the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian unless you have the Holy Spirit, right? So there's many very clear texts on that. But there are times in the Christian's life when you're called to do something for God, here it's go out as missionaries, and you're going to have an encounter with evil forces where you need a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it looks to me that's what we have here in this emphasis on Paul being filled with the Spirit. In other words, Paul or Saul is not just irritated with this man and trying to get him off his back. This is a man that specifically Luke mentions is filled 
with the Holy Spirit. He has the power. He has the ability. He has the discernment. He has the gifts to deal with satanic forces. And if he needed that, you need it too. And I need it too. So, will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. This morning we studied judgment. It's a big subject. In your lesson this morning, you hit just a few points. Well, here's almost like an Ananias and Sapphira kind of judgment. But this one has more mercy mixed in. Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. So this gradual darkness or blindness would come into this man's eyes. And I believe to bring this man to repentance. There is grace in the judgment that we see here. And where is the good news? Because it doesn't tell us whether Bar-Jesus or Elymas was actually saved. Where is the good news? Well, it's in that last verse. Well, first it says, Immediately mist and darkness came over him. He groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. And when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. Now, why did he believe? Did he believe because the hand of the Lord is miraculously bringing blindness to this man? which is pretty powerful, it's going to get your attention, right? I believe that's one of the reasons why we have so many miracles in the early first century, that it's to get people's attention. It's almost that, it's almost that the miracle is, is, is making a bigger statement than just the miracle. So, for example, with Jesus, if we see him healing on the Sabbath day, it's not just about healing that unfortunate person on the Sabbath day, it's talking about a bigger issue, how to keep the Sabbath, what the purpose of the Sabbath is. It's a larger issue than just solely the miracle. So I'm glad it says this. Sergio Paulus believed, for he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. So the Word of God is spread through these two men, Barnabas and Saul. It's going to triumph no matter what Satan throws at it. And the evidence in this particular story is that Sergio Paulus, this sincere, intelligent man, believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's like a code word that Luke will use for the conversion of this man. God wants to win people in high places. Don't be content just to minister for the poor. In Ellen White's writing, she has whole sections of trying to win the rich, the influential people in society, using simple methods Simple methods to bring the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ to them. What would you sooner have? 
president of the nation that's consulting the astrologers, or the president of the nation that's on his knees every day consulting Almighty God. So let's pray for our leaders or pray for people of influence, maybe people in Hollywood, that if they could just get converted, what a statement it would make. Pray for influential people that the Word of God can reach them. And if God so chooses to use you or I in doing that, then let's make sure that we're anointed and filled with the Holy Spirit, that we're doing God's work in God's way, and then giving Him all the honor and all of the glory. Can you imagine the joy that must have been in Saul's heart and Barnabas' heart when they saw this man, Sergio Paulus, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ? In fact, the Scriptures teach that there's joy in heaven over one sinner, that repents. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this, this uh, exciting adventure in the book of Acts. I pray, Lord, that it will touch our lives. We will not just see it as a story from 2,000 years ago, but something that's very relevant today. We're surrounded constantly by evil spirits using human beings to try and slow down your kingdom that is being built up on this earth. And sometimes, Lord, uh, for, because of sin, sometimes we get wrapped up in these kind of things. And I pray, Lord, that if there is uh, the sin of spiritualism in our lives in any shape or form, that you'll totally remove that from us. Get us out of that stuff. And may we find in the Lord Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel everything that we need to live a satisfied uh, Christian life. May this be the abundant life. May we find that in Jesus and in Him alone is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.